Um, welcome, Crosstowners. I'm happy to be with you again this Friday. Um, and it's a very interesting week, and I'm excited about it in a way, even though we are heading into our um, storm season that's no fun, and the heat has been oppressive. And I am not one of these people who love heat and humidity like my husband. No, not me. I'm glad not to be in New York, my native town, uh, between January and um, April. But on the other hand, uh, July and August in New Orleans makes up for it. Um, but I'm here with um, really one of our really uh, important and interesting creative spirits in the city, Nick Aziz, who is an artist, uh, multidisciplinary, and um, also uh, is engaged in the process of trying to open up Noma to a broader community, which is kind of always a struggle to, you know, have museums that have the image of being old school um, be welcomed into the lives of people who don't think museums are for them. So I, I, I take that as part of your mission in a way, but um, we're going to hear from him both on uh, the subject of what he's doing, but also the question of uh, what makes people want to be in, come to, and stay in New Orleans versus need to leave here, whether as natives or as people who've come through. So that's kind of part of the subject that I'm addressing as we study our cultural economy and figure out what is the best thing to do to keep it growing and helping people develop their creative careers. So Nick, you've been in and out of town. So I'm counting on you to, and, and you have origins as we, um, so many of us do because people who are anti-immigrant forget that most of them are immigrants themselves or the ancestors of immigrants. That's the thing that always drives me crazy. Um, but I'd like to know um, a little bit about your life, uh, both here in New Orleans, elsewhere. And it seems like for the moment, at any rate, you have made a commitment to being here. So I want to hear about that. Yeah, no, uh, thank you again for having me and, and the opportunity to share. I, uh, I am born and raised in New Orleans. Uh, I, I see it as one of the greatest gifts I've been given. Uh, I, I thank my parents as much as I can. I, I, sometimes like I've been like just riding home down Esplanade before they, they met on Esplanade Avenue in the 80s. And I like would just like send them a text and be like, just randomly like, thank you for for meeting and and allowing me to call this home you know um i yeah i truly see it as a privilege and um my mother's from haiti uh born in uh port-au-prince haiti uh my dad's from here uh grew up on new orleans street right behind dillard university um my uh my and i have a really strong uh just i think creative entrepreneurial roots on both sides so my uh paternal grandfather. Uh, his name was Omar uh, bin Abdulaziz. He was uh, the uh, kind of face operator of Omar's Pies. Uh, here I was going to say, is that Omar's Pies? I'm like a pie freak. So yeah, okay. it's been a part yeah. of my life in New Orleans. <laughs> that's, 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 I love I love meeting uh, people who, who, who know the, the history of that because, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's something I hope to uh, dig into more in my work going forward. Um, my artwork is just uh, that side of my my heritage because um, yeah, it, it 
you know, they, they started, my, my grandfather, uh, Omar, you know, he started by just selling pies in the, the St. Bernard Projects, just, you know, going, just walking around. And, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, very much a, a quote unquote American dream story, I guess, you know, translated from that to having as many as three locations in the city uh, in the early 90s uh, and 2000s. And so my dad uh, started selling pies uh, with the family business when he was like 16 or 17 at Jazz Fest and just like, you know, became uh, the, the lead of, of that, you know, uh, with my grandfather and my grandmother, uh, my grandmother who, who made the pies. Uh, I always want to make sure to shout her out, um, Hanifa. Um, and so, yeah, I had that on my, on my paternal side. And then um, my mom's side, my, my grandfather was uh, born in Damari, Haiti uh, in 1915. And, and he just had a, a very uh, just unique and turbulent and just uh, revolutionary story of just putting himself through school as a child. Uh, he lost both of his parents by the time he was 13 um, and just had to really just uh, push himself. He, he, he uh, ended up in Montreal for medical school in the uh, 40s. And uh, from there went to, did his residency at Yale, you know, in the 50s and uh, decided to um, settle in Shreveport, Louisiana where um, he uh, established a family, obviously, and, and had four children. Um, and actually, while he was in Montreal in 1944, he decided to start a Haitian art collection. Um, and they met my grandmother in 1956, and they continued to collect art throughout their lifetimes. And so this collection is now over 400 pieces of Haitian artwork. Wow. Yeah. And that's, um, that's really how I got my start uh, in art. You know, I, I grew up around this collection. I grew up around uh, amazing artists like my uncle, uh, Origel Pierre. And um, I was just always just uh, infused with this culture. And so, you know, now as an adult, uh, really just allowing that, that those influences from, from my childhood to just come out and express themselves and, and use the collection, use my personal artworks that I make, use my role, you know, and, and entities like Noma to um, illuminate these, these underdiscussed connections like the Haitian Revolution, like Haiti's impact on the culture of New Orleans. Um, yeah, and, and, just, and just using the work as a mirror to, to our community, to our city, to, to show the, the roots of the beauty that we all love and experience and what attaches us to this place, you know. It's so powerful that influence of Haiti. I don't. It's. It's. I can't imagine anybody, even the uninformed, who don't know about that connection because it's so strong, not only historical, historically, historically, but in the present. I mean, the, the the culture that we live and breathe every day is so heavily influenced uh, by the Haitian um, experience. So I'm I'm not surprised at all. Um, that uh, it, it, of course it was powerful for you in terms of your own uh, connection, but also, um, uh, you know, just knowing uh, how powerful it is for the whole city. Um, I just want to share with you uh, um, a, a little personal experience. So um, I grew up in the in in the South Bronx. I, I, I didn't I did not know I did not know that. Huh? Yeah, I'm I, never, yeah. I grew up in the South Bronx and. Um, I mean, we had a very strong Caribbean uh, demographics in the Bronx, as well as Puerto Rican in particular, um, Haitian less so than Puerto Rican, but definitely a part of my growing up. And um, uh, I used to frequent a beach um, called Orchard, uh, and it had a, a less, less nice name. 
um, also that it sounds like orchard. <laughs> but um, there were drum circles on the beach all the time. So I was heavily influenced by the drums. And I used to go to a library called Donnell Library across from uh, Museum of Modern Art, which I got to be a frequenter as a result of my school experience. Our schools took us to all those museums. And um, I would borrow, they had a big record library, and I would borrow Haitian drum music, just pure D Haitian drum music, and dance all over to the house to it. And my parents thought I was really um, inhabited by some other spirits. But it was, it was just, I, I love that music. And Cuban music is very strong for me too. And all of that, those rhythms, um, and other Caribbean and South American ribbons, rhythms are so much a part of our culture here, not to mention the costuming and the beading. Again, all of which, as far as I understand, comes mostly from West Africa. Um, actually, that's an influence. So um, have you been there? Have you been to Haiti? Yeah, I have. Uh, uh, hoping to go back very soon, but uh, my last and only trip was uh, 2011, actually. Uh, the year after the earthquake. And um, I went with, uh, as a part of a school trip, uh, I went to Morehouse College and uh, the, uh, we had a student there um, who just decided to take a group of students as like a service trip uh, that, that year after the earthquake. And so um, I, I would never forget just the feeling of uh, just the, the plane landing. And, and, you know, this was, this was this place that I knew my mom was from, my grandfather was from, and I just, I felt it in my in my I felt a sensation in my body of just like wow you know this is um this is this is home this is ancestral land and uh, yeah I remember just you know getting to experience the country and um, you know going to a couple of different cities and talking with people I got to you know speak French and and just uh, yeah it felt so good I can't wait to go back and. Uh, uh, expand upon some of the work I've been been doing the last couple of years. Well, tell me about that. So um, that I take it has been uh, an important part of your life here. So while you're living in New Orleans, and I'm interested in why you live here, um, I'm also um, interested in uh, how you have channeled these other influences and places as part of your life here. Um, I live here because uh, it is undoubtedly one of the most culturally rich, beautiful places on planet earth. And I just, like I said before, just have the, the gift of getting to call it my home uh, where I was born. You know, I think if we get into the spiritual sense, you know, just this is where my, my being started. And uh, I, I, I look forward to the journey of, of always staying attached to this place, regardless of where uh, my life journey takes me. I know that New Orleans will always be a uh, part of me and I hope that it will be a large part of me. Um, and so I think, uh, and all that keeps me here. I think, you know, despite whether it's the, uh, the streets or the economy or whatever problems people wanna, you know, bring up with the weather, you know, there's so much that keeps me rooted here uh, that, that I know uh, I will remain rooted here. And so with the work with, um, with Haiti, I think I really started digging and diving more into it around uh, 2015. Um, There's actually, uh, when I got back, I went to graduate school in the United Kingdom uh, in, in Manchester, uh, two hours from London. 
And when I got back, I, uh, there was this, this group of students, um, uh, Lena uh, Mayon and uh, Kim Coleman were two leads uh, on the project. And they were, they were at the time master's students at uh, SUNO and uh, Museum Studies program. And they were doing uh, research in a curatorial project around my family's collection. Uh, yeah, so I, so I think the, the work, uh, I started digging deeper into the work related to Haiti in New Orleans around 2015, 2016. Uh, I, I went to grad school in the United Kingdom, uh, two hours from London in Manchester, University of Manchester. And I uh, graduated, uh, finished that program in uh, September of 2013. And when I got back to New Orleans, uh, I was able to see and connect with uh, particularly two students, uh, Kim Coleman and Lena Mayon, who uh, were master students uh, within Suno's Museum Studies program at the time. And they were doing uh, research around my family's collection. And so I recall, you know, this, this was uh, 2014. And so I recall just uh, meeting them and like, you know, their entire class was uh, you know, taking visits to see my family's collection, you know, where we had it uh, stored in like my, my parents' house and uh, they were taking trips to my uncle's studio or Jean-Pierre. And, you know, I, I think it just really created this uh, different perspective on my own personal history. And, you know, it was my really my first time uh, understanding what, what the curatorial field was. And, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't, I, I want to do honestly more reflection upon that period because it really just shifted my thinking a lot. And uh, I really appreciate them and the Museum Studies program for even opening up my eyes in that way. And uh, yeah, from there, Lena actually uh, curated an exhibition with my family's collection. Uh, it was at the McKenna Museum. So one uh, half was at Le Musee and the other half was at the McKenna Museum uptown. And um, yeah, I remember just, just I, think, I think that was the end of 2014. And I just remember, uh, yeah, being, being a part of that, being immersed in it, experiencing it, getting people's responses from it. And uh, really that just uh, allowed me to continue, really, I think, to like take the baton in a way, um, because I think I'd had an interest to always do that. Um, like for, I, when I was in college, actually, uh, I was voted, uh, so I went to Morehouse, uh, it was an all male school. And then uh, we had Spelman College, which was our sister school right next door. And so uh, the end of my junior year, I was voted Mr. Spelman for my senior year. And part of my project proposal was to do a Haitian art exhibition at Spelman. And I remember, uh, you know, when I presented it as my like, I had 21 years old that this was even a, a field, you know, and so I, uh, you know, so I think back to like how like at 21, you know, I had this idea of a seed. I go to graduate school, come out of graduate school, move back to New Orleans and then like meet these people who are doing, you know, something that I had this desire to do. So I think, you know, seeing Lena and Kim do that work and then from 2014 to 15, starting to do it myself uh, really opened up the door. And so from there, you know, it's just been really in a way full steam ahead since then of just, um, you know, using the collection and just using my, my platform and voice in regards to the Haitian New Orleans connection to, um, 
yeah, really show people more, more of these roots and, and the beauty of these roots. If you didn't have the Haitian connection in your own personal history, do you think, and this is so speculative, there's no way to answer this really, but I'm just curious to ask it anyway, um, would you still, do you think, have been as um, uh, deeply uh, engaged in and wedded to New Orleans? I think no question. I mean, I think uh, I, I think it, it kind of relates to what I was referencing earlier about uh, you know this desire within my art practice to to uh, dig into my uh, paternal side of my history more because you know I, I think whether it's my maternal or paternal side, you know, there's these really strong roots of creativity and entrepreneurialism and art and culture. You know, I think uh, food is as much art and culture uh, as the the objects that go on walls and museums. You know, honestly, you know, I, I think about often recently how I really hope to make artwork that is more ritualistic because I feel like um, that's one of the issues with contemporary art and contemporary art experiences is that they're not ritualistic. Like people just, you know, no one really teaches you how to view an object on a wall or engage with an object on the wall. And, and often they're so static. Whereas like, uh, you know, engagements like food or engagements like music, you know, these are ritualistic experiences that people come back to and engage in over and over and over again. And so for me, you know, on that paternal side, having that root of community and food, you know, is something that like, I really am very interested in digging into more. Um, because food just brings together and brings together people in such a beautiful way. And, you know, to have that influence on that side of me, um, I think, you know, if, if I hadn't had the Haitian, you know, side or, or that influence, you know, I think I'd be digging into that because, uh, yeah, it, it's the same community, I think, African entrepreneurial creative root of expression, you know. So um, interesting that you were also... Um putting an emphasis on the entrepreneurial and uh, this is something that is problematic in New Orleans let's let's just say it um, I have often attributed the lack of uh, infrastructure development in music and in the uh, culture in general here to quote maybe unfairly or not a lack of an entrepreneurial emphasis in the city now, an entrepreneurial emphasis can be negative too. It can be about greed and corporate dominance and all kinds of ugly stuff. But on the other hand, if you don't have um, a natural uh, entrepreneurial um, energy in a community, it can really hold the arts back. It can hold everything back, but it, it, it also holds the arts back. So right now, um, Actually, yesterday, uh, the mayor put out a press release about some new federal money for economic development and workforce development. And um, she did talk about uh, the use of some of that to stimulate more entrepreneurial activity in the city. So, and there's a lot of talk about that, but there seems to be a gap or disconnect between kind of public programs that are supposed to support and encourage entrepreneurism and the reality of people actually appreciating their own capacity to be entrepreneurs. And I, I often say, 
that I wish instead of having studied home mech in junior high school, that they taught me how to run a business because I might be making enough money to do a lot more than I can do with my little nonprofit. So I, I just think that's such an important ingredient in advancing our culture and advancing our city in general. And needless to say, addressing the issue of uh, so much uh, endemic poverty in our city, if we had more entrepreneurial engagement in one way or another. How do you see that? I mean, you had it in your family, so it was, again, a gift that you have that in your family. Um, I didn't have that in my family. And uh, my husband's father was both an entrepreneur and a communist, so go figure how that worked out. So I, I, we're just not the most um, business-oriented people, and yet that is, for one, my and my organization's focus is trying to help this community understand the extent to which the arts contributes to our business and our economic de development potential. So what's, do you have a, a perspective on that? Do you have a, an idea for, um, have you thought much about not just your own entrepreneurial work, but um, how to encourage it in others? Yeah, no, I definitely, uh... I definitely have. I mean, uh, growing up as the the son and grandson of of two entrepreneurs, and my dad, uh, it, it makes me think. You know, when I was a kid, uh, like kind of like a a game or like tasks he would give me sometimes, like just randomly, he'd be like, "How do you spell entrepreneurship?" You know, and like if I got it right, you know, he he'd give me something, or you know, like he just always kept me on my toes. I think with that kind of like thinking um I mean yeah I remember as like young as like probably eight or nine you know and so just yeah even just looking at like that gift that I had a, a, a one a, a present father you know a mindful father but also a creative father who um encouraged creativity um and yeah instilled that in me to the point you know I had I think none of us really had an idea where that would go and, and now we see where it went you know I, I'm I am somebody who uh is often kind of steering my own ship in terms of, you know, creative opportunities and, and generating, you know, income and, and 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 learning how to sustain that. And so, I think um, I think it, you know, one one part of it is that it has to start young. You know, we have to really um, start encouraging creative entrepreneurial exploration in youth. You know, if if you are eight, nine, ten years old, like not just spelling entrepreneurship, but learning what that means and, and learning how uh, you can, you, I mean, I think the gift, one of the gifts of, of living in, in a country like this is that there is the ability to monetize uh, your, your creativity and your passions. Um, you know, it's obviously difficult. It takes a lot of uh, vision. It takes luck. It takes uh, uh sometimes uh, a lot of just like late nights and, and early mornings it takes hard work it, you know it takes a lot of different variables but and it takes rising above the blows and the obstacles yeah yeah it, it, it takes living through the failures and going beyond them so so many stories of people who yeah. make it in one way or another had to not make it at some point right Right. Really to drive their their impetus and their learning process about how to do better and go on. 
Yeah, and I, I really, I, I greatly appreciate you for referencing that because I think that is such a big part of it. And, and I think that's uh, that's the part that's very undiscussed in these types of journeys is like, uh, I, I think as a community, as a culture, uh, we have to like illuminate and celebrate failure more. Like we have to accept that like, you know, we, we have to like not look at failure as it's like such as like negative thing. It's like, you know, I, I, um, I failed numerous times, you know, in my life and, and like, you know, I've learned the lessons from those. And, you know, I have all my friends, you know, some of my friends are my most greatest inspirations. And they, they've tried things, you know, there, there has to be like a fearlessness to the the exploration, the creativity, because you will fail. You know, there are things that you will try and they, they don't succeed and then you come back and, and, and how you pivot is, is really. Exactly. And I, I don't think it, it's, it's not even so much we define things as failure when others fail to appreciate and understand what we're doing. So. I have an artist husband. He's his work is not decorative to say the least, and it's it's some people call it conceptual, and um, I really think it's more about activism at its heart. And um, he gets he gets ignored a lot, and it's hard. It's very very hard to live with. But um, <laughs> he's eighty five and he's still at it. And uh, and and a lot of other um, artists, I think that's very true of. He always compares himself to. Uh, Vincent van Gogh, who literally sold only one painting in his lifetime. That's just so unimaginable. But there's also all those really, really famous writers who had their first 10 books rejected and they kept writing. And ultimately they broke through when somebody recognized what they could do, which by the way, is something that I think is kind of your role in part. And, and it's such a critical role. And that is um, I guess discovering the undiscovered or recognizing the un under-recognized. I mean, that is a, a tough um, assignment in a sense, but I, I sense and tell me I'm wrong that that is, an, is, is part of your mission. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I think one of it, part of it is, yeah, I wouldn't even say discovering undiscovered. It's, it's just, I think, uh, shifting the, the light in the in the the gaze, uh, because I think, you know, throughout American history, uh, part of part of American part of Americanness or American history is like this uh, this this dissonance, this like uh, this this uh, retreat or running away from like uh, certain history, certain narratives, and so I think like yeah, part of my work is um, you know like, like I, I think. It, it makes me think of this uh, this quote that I think it was uh, Trevor Schumacher said it during P4. And I mean, it's obviously been said before him, but I just know like he was one of the, at that point, a prominent you know figure to say it, but you know, New Orleans is the most European African city in, in North America. And so, you know, I look at that quote, that's such a, that's such a, a line, you know, the, the fact that one place, you know, can have these two extremes, you know, constantly, in conversation with each other throughout throughout history, you know, and, and contemporarily, I think that's like there's so much there. Uh, but I think if we look at history, we can see how one part of that statement has received more uh, uh, claim and light and illumination, whereas another part has not. And so I think part of my work, you know, is to to 
share and, and, and shift the light using the, the, the platforms and opportunities that I've been given to illuminate that. And, um, you know, it makes me think of an artist like Flem, uh, who has this, this shirt and this phrase, everything you, you love about New Orleans is because of black people, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's just these, and, and this phrase, you know, has, has, you know, made so many uh, waves since, since he, uh, you know, released it. And I think, you know, it's just acts like that, you know, whether it is phrases, whether it is exhibitions, whether it is, uh, you know, reallocation of grant funds, whether it's reallocation of city funds, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, a millage for artists, you know, it's, it's all these different, you know, acts working in cohesion to really change how this community and culture operates. And I think that's part of my work that's I feel like that's what I've, I've been called to do you know I, I, I got here in a very untraditional way you know and but I really feel like this is what uh this is this is this is me reciprocating the gift that I've been given by getting to call this place home you know and I feel like just getting to uh to to pour from from the well that I've been uh been given you know you know, you just mentioned something that I want to um, uh, mine a little bit further. So right now I'm in literally the process of writing the final report with the recommendations for how to grow our cultural economy uh, with the objective of helping artists uh, build sustainable and rich careers on the one hand, and on the other, help grow the economy and um, uh, and, and promote uh, a broader engagement in that economy on part of people in the city. So um, millage is one, uh, one of the recommendations that um, I uh, have included. I didn't specifically say for artists, I said for culture, because uh, for example, the city that I came across as we studied what was going on elsewhere was St. Louis, where they have a millage. Um, it generates 40, million dollars a year. Now, they have chosen to use that 40 million primarily for free entry to arts institutions. That wouldn't be my choice of how to use that millage, but if that works for them and that's important and I can understand, again, getting people to have that exposure to art that you had um, as a child with your own family's collection. So that's a, that's a variation on that is, is the exposure in the museums. And certainly that was a big part of my childhood is literally my teachers taking me to the Museum of Modern Art and the Met and the Natural History Museum and, um, and so forth. So um, a millage for artists, which also raises something that I've also given a lot of thought to, and that is royalties for artists. I think it's absurd that someone's value can go from a few hundred dollars for a painting to millions and they don't share in that continuing increased value. We have royalties for music and writing and all kinds of intellectual property protections. Why not for art? So I wonder to what extent you've thought of that. And um, I'm gonna share with you, Nick, uh, our initial, it's, it's really very preliminary right now, so it's not for distribution, but I would like you to comment on the recommendations that we're working through at the moment. And, um, but, but what's your, uh, you pointed out millage for artists. So is, is that one key, are there a couple other recommendations that you've thought of that you think would make a difference in how 
our cultural um, universe, let's say, in, in this region uh, can uh, grow and be more rewarding for both the producers of work as well as the community? Yeah, no, it's, it's something uh, I feel like I have thought about for years uh, and just, you know, uh, I guess it, I, I would love to see the report because I think, um, you know, it's something I, I, I think this specific conversation is something I feel like I've been kind of like on the periphery kind of adjacent of for years because um, my first job was actually uh, with back in New Orleans after grad school was with uh, Mayor Landrum, you know, and, and uh, I was working for this uh, team called the, yeah, the Bloomberg uh, Innovation Team. And I, I, I never got to um, work. I, I think there was, a, a you know, my supervisor at the time, uh, both of them actually, uh, I think they could sense like this very deep uh, art and cultural interest that I had, but just I think figuring out how to uh, channel it and activate it was was kind of like a, a question or, or a struggle, but I think, you know, it's all contributed to, I think, the journey, so I'm, I'm very appreciative. Uh, but I think during that time, you know, I was, uh, one of my one of my portfolios of work was economic opportunity. So I, I, I worked with um, uh, Ashley Gardier and Charles West, uh, Roxanne Franklin on the establishment of the, uh, the network for economic opportunity and you know so I did a lot of uh you know I was on the founding kind of like team for the program called Strive and I was doing all this workforce economic development work job one you know Nola BA and all this type of stuff and so for me there was always this like kind of cultural art undertone that I just never got to like fully activate um but uh, I think you know in learning about how it works for these other kind of fields you know, it, it was always, uh, you know, there for me. And so I think, you know, millage comes to mind in terms of a way of how we uh, tap into the resources that are already being generated by this community. And so, you know, but I think one end of that is we as a, as a you know, I, I think within the arts cultural community, we have a certain uh, value and appreciation for art and culture in our community. But I think unfortunately outside of that, there is uh, an underappreciation. And I think that's one of New Orleans' issues because I think, you know, culture is so uh, overflowing and abundant here that I think it is so easy for people who are not in the art culture hyper bubble to understand that. So like, I think it's how you get, you know, artists, whether you're, I think it's it's kind of across the board, whether you're a visual artist, whether you're a musician, you know, whatever type of, you know, whether you're culture bear, Mardi Gras Indian, you know, whatever. When you leave New Orleans, the level of appreciation, particularly monetarily, you know, is is like night and day sometimes. And I think that kind of juxtaposition uh, is a is a, issue that we have here at home. Like there's there's no reason that as a visual artist or a musician that, uh, yeah, sure there are more resources in places like LA or Chicago or New York, but we should be able to generate the same amount of appreciation here because those places are coming here to appreciate it and, 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 and absorb it and get it. So I think we as a city have to really look at ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, like how are we, underappreciating the cultural artistic brilliance that exists here 
And how do we as a city, government, cultural community shift that? Because these big- How do we? I mean- What you just said is a, is a phrase basically I've been living with since I got here in the early 70s is when I arrived. And, you know, Tannen and I literally founded, started all the meetings and work uh, with the nonprofit status and funding and everything, the CAC. And back right. then, we're talking 75, six, I said, okay, this is it. This is going to really get people to understand and appreciate contemporary art. And, and we're not there yet. And um, I think that lack of appreciation, as you said, is because it is so abundant. We are also more like a natural underdeveloped or developing culture where the culture is more a life force than it is a separate uh, kind of activity that is appreciated only on stages and in museums. It's, 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 it's everywhere. And so, again, I think that's part of that tendency to um, underappreciate it uh, on, on its merits as a way of, as something that requires investment and support. And I think, you know, I, I think the CAC example and you know, other examples, like, like, I think you all in, in, in making efforts like that have set the foundation, you know, and, and I think, you know, people in my generation, we have to look up to you all and, and one, like express gratitude because a foundation, a foundation has been laid, but then now it's like, I think the next step, which is, I assume, like what this reporter is doing, I think there's an importance, unfortunately, for like, uh, people at like kind of like a government C level to see like the reports and the numbers, you know? And so like, you know, I think with these, like, like for instance, um, and, and I think like there are instances, you know, I, I experienced working in government. There is a government a lot of times lacks creativity. And so we're literally talking about like the, the highest level of creativity when it comes to like how we're assessing the economic impacts of art and culture and making and producing all that music. So I think like when these reports are generated, we have to realize that like we're truly going above and beyond, you know, what really has ever been conceived or done. So like, like I think about like, I've, I've had this idea for a while of like um, someone uh, and if somebody out here is listening wants to lead this report, please do. But I've had this idea for a while of um, someone creating a report that shows how living in New Orleans as a resident of New Orleans, it costs you more uh, annually. There's an expense annually that is like no other city because of like uh, a hosting cost. So like for instance, when we have, we are a tourist destination. We are residents of the city. People come in in droves to visit the city and we host. And when we host people, what do we do? We take them out to dinner. We take them to bars. We take them out. We experience our culture of our city. We are thus spending more with that extra line item than somebody who lives in Idaho or somebody who lives in Bentonville, Arkansas or wherever, you know, there's, there's an extra cost that's associated with being a place that people want to come to constantly. And so to me, you know, that's something maybe we know kind of casually or anecdotally, but I think to see that 
in a report to see the numbers of that, to see the economic impact, that helps the people in government who, who are civics situations need to see those numbers to understand better. And so I think the same is with creativity and arts and culture. When these people are seeing these numbers and seeing impacts, that can help their brains understand, okay, well, maybe we need to like shift this here, do this here. Um, and, but then also I think takes a, um, a spiritual conversation of like, how are we appreciating the art and culture? Because there's a, there's a financial monetary aspect, but then there's also like a kind of just like natural, spiritual, cultural appreciation of what we're talking about. And I think you need both because I think, again, there's like this underappreciation of it all because it's so abundant. It's so just everywhere. And that impedes sometimes I think the energy and progress around like, oh, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's already there. We don't need to do anything. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's happening. It's living. It's, it's operating. You know, it's like, no, you actually do because so many of the, 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 the scales are not balanced here, you know? So yeah. Uh, now, to use a cliche example, there's no uh, ignoring the impact that Jazz Fest has had. So uh, pre-Jazz Fest, there really was no um, larger than life kind of gathering of our cultural influences in one place at what time that people could come from elsewhere and see. And, and now there is, and I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Jazz Fest because right now I, I, I resent the price tag that I can't afford. But, <laughs> you know, uh, th that represents a whole different sort of um, mantra of how to do Jazz Fest. You know, it's become more like a uh, international Jazz Fest that requires big, big acts and big money uh, and therefore big ticket prices. But that in the beginning, it, it, it was the first thing that really uh, brought together the influences we're talking about and presented them and, and attracted people who, you know, you just have to go to a jazz fest and see these, these people with their canes and their um, sun visors walking around, still at it for maybe 50 years, uh, some of them, to realize how important it's, it's been. But uh, we need... Um, more of that. We have lots of festivals. Everybody brags about all our festivals, but when it gets down to things like chicken and popcorn and I don't know what, um, as opposed to uh, digging deeper into the culture, maybe we're missing the mark a bit. You know, this has been a very interesting conversation for me, and I um, really look forward to uh, engaging you more in our the final stages of our plan work. Um, and uh, we'll definitely be um, back in touch with you to engage you in that. Uh, I do want to, um, we've I've pretty much um, taken up most of the show with you, which is just fine because it's been of value and, and interesting for me to learn more about you because, you know, my, my exposure to you is really through the ICA and your, your, curation, your curation of uh, Keith Saunier's show. He's an old friend and I was, you know, thrilled to see that show and um, appreciated your role in it. Um, not well, I, I did, I did uh, Tina's, uh, I co-curated Tina's show. Uh, Katie did yeah, keep- I assume that, right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I was involved in uh, some of the programming for uh, Keith Sonia's show too, but yeah, yeah. By the way, I just want to point out that I festooned the walls of the culture, the mayor's office of tourism, arts and entertainment which was the predecessor to the cultural economy office. It was the first oh, wow. at the uh, 1215. And I put her 
art and uh, Haitian art on all the walls of the office and the conference room. Wow. Uh, and that was uh, about 1995 or six. I can't remember exactly. But That's I, had awesome. been, I had been working for David Dinkins in New York and had just come back and uh, Mark was running for office. Then I um, got involved and, and helped and, and then headed up the transition team and recommended the creation of that office, which he did. That's mm -hmm. when that got created. Wow. I credit. Thank you. So, no, again. That is, as many hits as um, our mayor takes for maybe not being as inclusive as we'd love, um, she has made that office uh, ever more productive than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. and, that. Um, also, I'm going to send you a copy of the press release that came out yesterday that did not hit the papers today, but I think it's very important in terms of the discussion of um, workforce economic development money that um, they have sourced from the feds and, and where it's going to go, I think is something we need to be involved in. <laughs> you know, it's, the arts community has to be a little bit more, um, I think, uh, demanding, quite frankly, of, yeah. of how the dollars get spent in our state. So. Nick Aziz, one of the more um, thoughtful, creative, and intentional people in town. How old are you, Nick? I, I'll be 32 in December. Right. So you're young enough to really continue to have an impact in our city for a long time. Yeah, I, I'm on the yeah. other scale, so <laughs> I'm glad uh, you're there, and I look forward to working with you more. No, and thank again, thank you and, and all uh, your colleagues for the for the work that you've done to lead us to this point. You know, so I, I'm I'm again like to the baton, uh, you know, analogy. Like I'm 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 here to to bring my energy to the to the to the to the relay. You know, and take the baton however I can. Well, I was never very good at twirling a baton. I went to an all girls high school, so we didn't do the uh, cheerleader thing. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll find a way to uh, do that um, uh, metaphorically. <laughs> I look forward to it. Nick Aziz, a creative and um, foreseeing and an important part of our community. I look forward to um, more conversations with you. Please call anytime you have something you want to share with the public. Um, yeah. We are, our show is really programmed to focus on culture, environment, and um, economic development, entrepreneurialism, all the type things we've been talking about. So I look forward to uh, hearing from you more. Yes, same, same. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, you take care and have a good, uh, good hot weekend. <laughs> for the show closer today, I want to share with you two ideas for Father's Day. We all want to honor our fathers, unless they have not honored us. Um, so to help a two-way honoring, I suggest you share with your father what is important to you that he can honor. Perhaps, for example, if you are a girl or a woman, you might want him to honor your right to decide what is best for your body and your future. It might be aborting the results of unwanted sex or simply avoiding the financial implications of an unexpected pregnancy. If you are a boy or a man, it might be asking him to raise you without a lust for guns. Maybe guns may just bring more peril to your family and friends. Certainly those AR-15s are really not so recreational. They're just killing machines. So instead of making gun manufacturers richer, 
how about a gift of, say, art? Maybe something you made or a friend or an artist who lives here in New Orleans. Maybe it is just um, enough to tell your father how much you love him um, with all of his good points and all of his flaws. That might be the best gift of all. This is Jean Nathan for Cross Town Conversations for Father's Day, 1922. Please enjoy the weekend with your dad. <laughs>